Turn with me over to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. We're going to talk about motherhood today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The title of the, of, the, of the sermon is Mother's Day, Anonymously Great. Anonymously Great. Verses, verse 1 through 4, chapter 2 of Exodus. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got, a, got him a wicker basket and covered, covered it over with tar and pitch. Verse 4, then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. Lord, help as we study. Four things in this passage, five, that I'd like to talk to you about. First, how pious people wed. Second, how parents decided to have a, a child in crisis. Third, how they decided to protect him. Fourth, how they decided to prepare him. And fifth, how they placed him intentionally in the currents of the world. Here we have two parents that are anonymous. Now, we find out their names in Numbers chapter 26, verse 59. It's Amram and Jochebed. But we don't know who they are here. And what what is even more amplifying to the fact that we don't know who they are is that their son is writing this note. Moses wrote Exodus. And so he didn't even say mom and dad. He just said a man from the house of Levi. And a woman from the house of Levi got together and had a baby. You would think that, that Moses would say, my mom and dad did me. I'm so proud of them. Look what happened. And look what happened with me. This is so cool. But he doesn't call out their names. And he doesn't identify him as the progeny, nor them as his parents. And I think the reason being, even though he could have, is not a dishonoring thing. It's a literary style whereby he is now trying to help everybody understand because everybody who's reading this knows the end of the story. They understand that Moses became the greatest leader in human history outside of Christ. None have done more for great and better than him. None other than Christ. The greatest leader. He took a people that were a large family and made them into a nation brought them through a wilderness, reluctant followers. Miraculous was done by his, his leadership. Water that was bitter turned sweet as a result of what God told him to do. Manna fell out of heaven so that the people of Israel could have bread every day. Quail just came out of no place at 5 o'clock in the evening so the people could have meat. At his, at his direction with his staff, Red Seas parted for the people. None have been better at leadership than Moses in the history of man other than Christ. So we know the end of the story. But here we start with anonymity. Moms, nobody may know you now. But keep raising your babies right. You do not have to have a pedigree. You just have to have availability. If you are willing to be the kind of person that comes under the covenant of God, look at what God might do with your child. I can promise you this, that my mother never thought I'd be here. She just wanted to raise a wonderful child that had good morals and cared for people and did right. She didn't get to see any of what we built. 
By the time she passed, we were maybe 350 people. We had no big vision to do things that were really extraordinary. We were, it was burgeoning. It was coming. But she didn't get to see what has happened here. And, and, and I, I wish she could have lived that long to, to, to be able to see it. But her vision was not what God had for me. She just knew that she needed to be responsible with me so that whatever God wanted to do with me, I was prepared. Anonymous but everybody now knows Viola Ruth. People I talk to say, who are your parents? In fact, I, uh, I, I, I was with a, I, I do some things with the Washington football team. And years ago, I was doing a Bible study with them. And I was at a camp when, when a coach who happened to play with the Kansas City Chiefs when I was young was now coaching one of the players who was in our church. And that player uh, came to me and said, do you know this guy? Because my dad would take us around um, the Kansas City Chiefs on a regular basis. My dad had some notoriety in the city. And so many of these people who were football players with this professional sports team knew me, and I called them uncle. And this guy came over to my home when we were younger, and I was just two, three, four years old. And <clears throat> he hadn't seen me since. And the player introduced me, reintroduced me to the coach. And the coach said, who, who's your mom and daddy? I said, Viola Ruth and Joe Fuller. The Viola Ruth part, because he realized I was a preacher, he got. The Joe Fuller part, because he realized I was a preacher, he didn't. He knew my dad really well. And so part of him went, Joe Fuller's son? Preacher? Mm. But the Viola Ruth, Joyce Johnson, or Fuller part said, yeah, that makes sense. You don't know what your child might do in terms of name recognition later for you. And it may not be that any of you are trying to figure out how to get your name in lights. That's not the issue. The issue is that God knows. Though you may live in anonymity now, you won't in glory if you do what you're supposed to. It may be that your children eclipse all that you do naturally. Be better employees. Rise up the corporate ladder more than you. Do things spiritually greater than you. Great. Nobody may know you except God Almighty who realized you were the one who laid the foundation for their greatness. Anonymity might be the order of the day for you. That's all right. They're going to know your name later. God wants to do something great for your children. But let's start how this starts. A man from the house of Levi married a woman from the house of Levi. Came together. Now, at this point, the house of Levi is not what it would be in another three or four years. Yeah, I'll say four, 100 years, 80 years. The house of Levi would be the place at which God would decide to produce his priesthood. Anybody who was a priest in Israel would come from the house of Levi. And so the, the, you, you can see here now preparation is being made so that this thing is structured in such a way that the people who were born from these two would then be the progenitors of all that was most holy in representing God on the earth. Indeed, Moses was the primary for the house of God. His brother Aaron, again, born from Jochebed and Amram, Moses' parents, in, in Numbers 26 we get the names, his brother Aaron was the high priest. And Miriam, if there was praise and worship and music, which wasn't really instituted until the, 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 the monarchy, but at least she was over the dancing and the singing. These three were the ones who comprised what it looked like to serve God well on behalf of the people. And they were birthed from these two. Listen to me, mama. Your life of holiness and purity 
has a great impact on your children. What you listen to, how you speak, how you think, what you do has a great impact on your children. And God wants to do something through the lives of your children that is way beyond whatever you have in terms of a vision for them. But you have to build a foundation in your own life that is most right from the house of Levi. And this is why I think Moses is saying it like this. Everybody who was reading this understood the house of Levi was going to be the place from which God would choose the priesthood. He's saying holy people got together and had a child. Even before holiness was defined, these people knew what it looked like to be most right. Oh, mama, live right. There's a covenant that is to be passed down from you to your children, both by way of environment and instruction. You're to be more than just a nurturer. You're to be a discipler. Are you listening to me? Somebody who provides, yes, care and comfort and instruction and security with your husband or by yourself providing a household and provision. All those things are super important, but the distinctive that is supposed to be present in your life that is different than the rest of the world who is responsible to do everything I just said is that you are to disciple your children according to the ways of God. It's best you know to instill principles in them that they might serve him better than you. That's what your job is. That's what parenting is in the Christian way. It is not just about raising responsible human beings that are good citizens, moral people who do more good than bad. It is about raising image bearers from Almighty God. And every day you need to consider yourself somebody who has been tasked by God to do that on his behalf. Because these kids are not yours. They are on loan to you. They are God's. You are responsible. Although they have your last name, they are ultimately his. And we are not responsible to him how we treat them, how we raise them. Two people that represented what holiness would look like in a hundred years were now chosen by God as the ones who would be the, the, the people who would raise up a generation that would comprise a familial deliverance package. Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. What a family. But here, anonymous. Secondly, these parents decided to parent in a time of crises. <laughs> The backdrop is that Israel was enslaved to Egypt. Egypt is a nation. Pharaoh was their king. Israel were their slaves to do all of their labor. Pharaoh looked at Egypt, who was burying a lot of children because they really believed in being fruitful to multiply. They were burying a lot of children. Pharaoh was concerned that somehow Israel was going to outnumber the Egyptians and take them over. And so he made a horrible edict. He said, every male child that is born needs to be thrown into the Nile and drowned horrible and so here we have Jacobet and Aram, Amram trying to figure out how in the world do we produce I mean, it, it was a think about it now there was no gender reveal party you didn't have little cannons coming out with blue smoke and confetti nothing they didn't know the, the, the gender of the child and so when you got pregnant you were just thinking oh no oh no is this going to be a day of tragedy or joy Fortunately, the Egyptian midwives who were responsible to kind of be the birthing police 
were God-fearing women, and they wouldn't tell the authorities when a male child was born. It was great. And it says that God blessed the mid- midwives who would help in this process. They were, it was just wonderful. And so here comes Jochebed giving birth. Moses comes out. Miriam's his older sister. And they're figuring out, okay, we got a boy. Uh, and we got we to gotta do something. They decided, even though they knew it was difficult to birth a child in their generation, we're going to be forward-thinking. We're going to believe God's going to meet us and him, even in this horrible environment. I talk to parents sometimes, and they say, excuse me, I talk to husbands and wives sometimes who want to be parents and thinking about being parents. And they say, we don't know whether we ought to bring up a child in this world. I mean, it's so messed up. I mean, America is really divided. It's a horrible, tense place. And then we got this pandemic that's it's hurting people and killing folks. And, and then we got wars happening in places and the threat of wars and people launching nuclear missiles and who knows what that means. And it's, it's just that the internet is horrible. The social media is even worse. Bullying. Oh, how am I going to... Why would I want to bring a child into this junk? And I, I listen to him and I say, well, I understand what you're saying. It's a, it's a bad place. The world's a bad place. But who knows whether the child you bring into this place could fix it? Who knows? At least be an agent of helping to fix it. Amram, Jacobed, your baby's going to change the world. Your people have been crying out for deliverance for hundreds of years waiting for somebody to come and help them out of their horrible situation. If Amram and Jochebed had said, the world's too bad, we don't think we're going to have a child because somebody's going to kill them. Ah, no, we're going to stop. We're going to be celibate. That's what we'll do. We'll just be celibate and love one another. Moses would have never happened. I tell Christian parents, have as many as you can by the grace of God. Many as you can. I realize we got a lot, and the standard I have, the bar is pretty high. We got seven. I'm with you. I'm not trying to have you beat me. What I am trying to do is give you courage to say, you have no idea what God wants to do through your womb, Mama. You have no idea the greatness that might be birthed through you. Do not be fearful or let this society begin to dictate how you do the will of Almighty God. Be fruitful and multiply. Watch what God might do. They decided, we're going to have a child even in this horrible environment. Courageous parents. Thirdly, they decided, we've got to protect them. They said the child was beautiful. Well, what mama doesn't think their baby's beautiful? I mean, that's just kind of common, right? But here, it, it, the, the idea of beautiful, again, Moses is writing this. <laughs> the idea of beautiful conveys there's something favored about this child we don't understand. Something different about this one. It's not just a physical appearance. It's not just how cute I think my progeny is. It's something that's intangible, but we can see it. Others may not, but we can see it. There's something beautiful and favorable about this child. And so they decided we have to, not just because we love him, we have to save this one from death. We got to figure out how to hide him. And they put in all the institutions of protection so that this child could grow up and be what he is supposed to do. Moms. Your job is to figure out how to protect your child best, not just from the stuff that is in the world, because there's a lot of bad stuff out there, but the stuff that is in you. 
At some point I realized, right about 12, and my eldest was 12, and my youngest was a newborn, and there were five in the middle, I realized these kids need a better dad. If they had a better dad, they'd be better kids. I didn't blame them for all of their flaws. I realized their flaws, they came by honestly. It's my fault. My genes weren't as good as they should have been. My behavior was not as obedient as it should have been. The reason they are the way they are, and they were great kids, is because I am the way I am. God, please help me to be better. And I went on a year, on a decade, 10 years, of praying and fasting one day a week for God to change me so I could help them be better. And there is no question you can ask my children. They will tell you. Grant, who's the baby, got the best version of bread ever. They're all just saying, you got to do this, and you got to do that, and you hardly ever got any spankies. And the oldest are saying, boy, you don't know what we went through. And I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm saying, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I get it. I didn't know what I was doing, but, and, and, and I, I apologize, but I also let them know, now you know you didn't come out with a manual, right? There was no book on you. We had to figure it out. And I read every parenting book I could find. It didn't help me because none of them spoke about Joseph. Brian, Garrison, Meredith, Tellus, Brooke, or Grant, none of them had them in them. It's just like my marriage books that I read before I was married. I read seven. I wanted to be the best husband I could be. And within a month and a half, I said, do you know, Cynthia, I've read these books and nothing about what we're going through is in these books. And she said, that's because I'm not in the book. I threw all the books away and said, okay, <laughs> I'm in school right now. You're going to have to teach me how to love you because I do not have a clue. I don't have a clue. I know I feel some kind of way, but I don't respond. I seem to be doing stuff that I think makes me happy so it will make you happy. And I'm not helping you be happy, but I want you to be happy because when you're happy, I'm happy. So could you help me help you be happy so I can be happy? Because neither of us are happy right now. That's the way I felt. You didn't come out with a manual, Joseph. I didn't know when I was 26 years old. Are you kidding me? God gives the most, respons the, the, the most important responsibility in the entire universe to people who are wholly unqualified. <laughs> you got a human being and you don't know what you're doing. When I took my boy home from the hospital, back then you got, to, you got to stay three days in the hospital if you birthed a child. So my wife was in the hospital three days, recuperated, all was good. I picked her up in our car on the third day. Car seat, clicked him in. When we drove out of the parking lot of Arlington Hospital, I put the flashers on. <laughs> and I drove 25 miles an hour all the way home. I'm not kidding you. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. I thought I'm going to keep my, keep my boy safe. I'm going to make sure things are right. You figure out ways to protect, Mom. I know it doesn't, it, it may not be what you do 10 years after you birth your child, but you figure out ways to protect. It says they hid him. H-I-D, not H-I-T. They hid him. For three months. I don't know how you hide a newborn without anybody knowing. They cry all the time. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. Why? Because they realize there's something favorable about this child. 
And it is your job to hide your child in such a way that they are not influenced adversely from things that would hurt them, harm them, influence them the wrong way. Nothing wrong. Listen, my, my wife and I homeschooled all of our children. <laughs> she homeschooled. I was the principal. 23 years. 23 years. Now, the first four years, I did all the science and math. So through my firstborn and second, my firstborn's fourth grade and my secondborn's first grade, I did all that stuff. Uh, but after that, too many people and too much work for me to do. I, I just, too many people in my house. Cynthia did it all for 23 years. She was outstanding. You talk about a mama. Like, wow. At some point, my wife was educating five grades at once. And all but everybody went to college I got one still left in but he'll graduate next May everybody did great they're all smart hats off to my wife she's amazing she's amazing she did such a good job with our children Valentine's Day 2020 before the pandemic I took her out to dinner I said I want you to know I wrote this in a card I said you never have to do another thing for me if you never wash, if you never clean, if you never cook my food, I'm good. Because you have done me so well. You've given me children that love Jesus. And they have such a springboard that I didn't have when I was in my teens and 20s. Thank you. You never have to do another thing for me. She, fortunately, she hasn't complied with that. But that's how I feel. She is outstanding. She provided an environment that protected my children. Now, some people thought, did you homeschool in order to, to, to keep the wiles of the world from getting to your children? No, that's not why we did that. The world was in my house because it was in me. I was the greatest danger to my children. I was the problem that was the biggest I wasn't concerned about what the world was doing yet. We wanted to homeschool so we could pour as much goodness into them as possible, cultivate relationship between my wife, me, and the children, to pour into them and disciple them and shape them and train them for their, their purpose, their ultimate goal. That's why we did homeschooling. And homeschooling is not for everybody, as evidenced by this pandemic. I mean, it's hard. It's not for everybody. It's just what we were called to do. There are a bunch of kids that turn out wonderfully because parents do what they're supposed to do in their home, and their kids went to public school. I'm not against that at all. Private school, public school, please do whatever you feel. I am for whatever God tells you to do. And for us, it was homeschooling. This was our way to protect them by ensuring that the world couldn't get to them and there were some things we didn't want. To, in other words, you, you generally you don't want your six-year-old to have a, a cell phone. You're supposed to laugh at that, which means some of you <laughs> are, are rethinking your decision. <laughs> some, you, you need to shield them from some stuff, but that's not the primary reason we decided to homeschool. We did it for, for proactive reasons, not just for defensive reasons. But there are defensive reasons in order to do that. And she, meaning Jochebed, protected her children, her child, Moses. Fourth, she prepared him. She knew that at some point she couldn't keep him any longer. And she built this, this basket and put pitch around it, which you kind of like 
glue and, and sealant. And she put the baby in it and put it in the Nile in hopes that someone would pick it up and be benevolent. But the preparation is that which allows the child to go out into the world because you know they're going to go at some point. They're leaving. They might come back, but they are leaving. <laughs> at some point, they're going someplace. And so you want to prepare them. And what does that look like? Preparation is that which provides a sense of safety so that when the world's currents begin, begin to affect them, they know exactly how to stay dry. So we would teach our children how to pray, how to talk to God, how to hear from God, how to read their Bible, how important it was to integrate the truth they found in their, their word with the, with the world in which they lived, how to navigate difficulty in relationship when you've got somebody who is going contrary, who's your friend, to the will of God, and you've got to stay the course. We taught them regularly what it means to stand for truth without hurting people. We taught them discipleship. We prepared them for when we were going to put them in a basket and send them into the currents of the world. You need to do that, parents. Please, make sure your devotional life is, is really good so that you can help your children's devotional life be really good. We had, we had uh, family devotions whereby we would gather all of our family together at least four days a week. And the children so loved this. They said, are we doing devotions tonight? Daddy, we got to do devotions. Can't go to bed yet. And, and, and this was probably uh, when all of them were between, my oldest was 12, all the way up to 18, and my youngest was a newborn all the way up to about six or seven. Every night, we do devotions. And when my 18-year-old went off to college, we still did it with the six, and then we did it with the five, and then we stopped because everybody had, could read on their own. They had their youth groups to go to. They had their events to go to, but we did them, and wow, it was great. They'd have to stand up and share what they learned either in children's church or what they learned in the devotion that day from scripture and they'd have to speak to us they'd have to talk to the entire family and what that did was train them on what it meant to public speak so we were discipling them because we knew at some point whether they were in ministry or whether they were in corporate America we were teaching them to be leaders and leaders got to talk at some point you got to say something and we want them to be able to not have fear whenever they get up in front of folks to be able to communicate I would read a story from the Bible. I'd tell a story that was really funny in children's language. It was a lot of, but, but it was basically based from scripture. We'd have time of prayer and they'd pray for the family. It was a great, great moment. My point is that we were preparing them for when we had to put them in a basket and, and tell them bye. Every night when I was home, I'd pray with them before they went to, bed, went to sleep because they were in their bed. And then I'd sing praise and worship to them before they went to sleep. I'd tell them personal stories. I'd tell them funny stories, stories I made up. I was a superhero in their world. I was called the Black Tornado. <laughs> the Superman had nothing on me. Nothing, nothing. I, I vanquished all enemies. We had makeup figures that did biblical things. Everybody, there was a moral story to it. Every night I was home. And I'd end with praise and worship. And they'd go to sleep as I was singing teaching them what it meant to worship God in the, in the solitude of their own room. You have to prepare them for the time when you're going to put them in the basket and set them off in the currents of the world. And this last part, for some, is a melancholy moment. It's always impacting when you have to put your child in a place where now you're sending them out. It's always melancholy. 
But for some, it's more melancholy than others. Some are saying, yay, bye. <laughs> they love their children, but they want their life back. Others are saying, oh, my baby's leaving Wherever you find yourself, the issue is not, the issue doesn't have to, to deal, for the most part, with the emotions of the moment. As the, the confidence you need to have in that moment that we've taught them everything they need. Now, there's some things you're, you're, you're not going to be. Do they know that they got to change their sheets every week? Do they know how to wash their clothes right? I mean, I've done it for a month. Do they know how to, do they know how much detergent to put it? Do they know anything about taking the lint trap out of the dryer? <laughs> Little things, you know, you, when you visit them, you go check the lint trap, mama. I know what you do. And you find a whole shirt in there. <laughs> a whole shirt is in the lint trap. You're thinking, oh gosh, oh, I don't know if they're going to make it. But you've done everything you know you can do in order to prepare them. And you want to be able to say this at the age of 18 or whenever it's time for them to go. Boy, there's a lot of stuff I wish I hadn't done. So many mistakes I've made as a parent. So many. But you want to be able to say, there's nothing I wish I had. Some parents really are excited about going on camping trips with their children and talk about the stories. I'm good. We never camped, and I'm real good about that. My children come to me and say, Dad, how come we, we didn't go camping? Because I hated it. That's why. I wasn't interested in taking you outside of a place where I paid for. Sleeping in elements. Why in the world would I want to do that? Putting ourselves intentionally in discomfort? That's just wrong to me. Now, I'm not mad at anybody who believes that's important. That's just not me, and I ain't mad I didn't take my children camping. It's something I'm, I don't wish I had done. A lot of stuff I wish I hadn't done. But nothing I wish I had. I trained my children as best I know how. And my wife feels the same way. Cynthia, what a woman. She poured herself into her children. Discipled them, helped them, nurtured them, trained them. And still does so. My children still would rather talk to me than her. I speak in headlines. My bride speaks in columns. So if you get a conversation with Cynthia, sit down. It's going to be 45 minutes. <laughs> Dad, please, rescue me. Dad, please, help. No, you, you, you deserve this conversation. You deserve this conversation. I told you in headlines, you didn't do what I said. Now you get her. She poured into them, poured into them fully. And although our children are not perfect, I'm so proud of them. And I'm so happy that there's nothing we wish we had done. Nothing. Moms, live that way. Pour into your children. Even when you're tired, do what is necessary to make sure they get what they need. Thank you for all of your devotion. Thank you for your attention. And thank you for your love. Let's pray. Daddy, we're grateful for your goodness and grace. I pray that you would help us be the kind of people we ought to be. Parents we ought to be. So that we can raise up children 
in your image, not just ours.